Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have two guests. I have Drs. Jenny Beal and Dr. Mercedes Clatball. Jenny is a postdoctoral fellow at the Purdue University, where she also attended pharmacy school and got her PhD, so boiler up. Mercedes also got her PharmD from Purdue, where she is currently a grad student working towards her PhD. Both have spent a number of years working in community pharmacy for larger chains, as well as outpatient retail pharmacy. They're coming on the podcast today because they really did an awesome paper that was published in the Journal of American Pharmacists Association on working conditions in retail and community pharmacy. So welcome to the podcast, Drs. Beal and Clabaugh. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Hey, the pleasure is all mine because I'm glad to see somebody is actually applying the scientific journal approach, if you will, and like really looking at the issue that is just hitting at the core of pharmacy and what the public think of us and probably why we've even fell in you know, our respect. We used to be number one for decades and then we kind of fell a few spots in the rankings for how much people trust us. So with that, you, you guys published a paper, Perceptions of Working Conditions and Safety in Community Pharmacy and Policy Solutions to Address Community Pharmacy Working Conditions. What made you, along with Kimberly Illingworth, write this study and this paper? Yeah, so this really came about really quickly in January 2020. The New York Times published an article talking about pharmacists' concerns about how the stressful working conditions in their pharmacies were endangering patient safety. And very quickly, within 24 hours, CBS came up with a response to this article, basically reassuring the public that patient safety was a top priority and saying that their pharmacists had been surveyed and they were very happy and content and were not concerned. It pretty quickly came to light that that survey, that internal survey, was not exactly anonymous. (laughs) And so the problem with not having an anonymous survey being distributed by your employer is that the responses may not be all that accurate. So I wanted to make sure that someone was going to collect data on working conditions in a way that could be anonymous so that the respondents could actually provide candid, accurate responses. Although I feel like anyone that works in community pharmacy or is close to a community pharmacist feels that it's pretty well known that working conditions are less than optimal, it's always helpful to have data on your side. So when you have corporations saying that, oh, you know, working conditions aren't that bad, or if something bad happened, that's just an exception, that's not the rule. It's good to have data to show that, you know, well, maybe maybe it's not the exception. Maybe this is a more common problem. So that's really kind of how this study came about. Okay. And, you know, we've seen a lot of states take this literal, right? Like they've seen the reports. They've seen them for both of the major chains in the New York Times. They've seen this study. And we've seen, I know my state, Ohio, is probably at the forefront of really launching and kind of diving into that and making sure that, hey, this seems like a patient safety issue because they did their own study, which was anonymous. And the the data doesn't lie. Like you said, it was huge. What type of data did you find, like numbers wise and things like that, that kind of stuck out to you, if you will? So we really wanted to make sure, first of all, that when we, when we looked at this, that our findings weren't explained by like individual factors, like years of experience or, you know, type of degree. And we looked at workplace factors as well, like prescription volume, and we controlled for those things. And when we did that, in general, 
we found that company climate and workflow were perceived negatively by respondents from all community settings, really, but most negatively by those who worked in chain pharmacies. And so when we talk about company climate, we're really talking about corporate level um, and store level. And corporate level, we're really focused on like the policies that come from the corporate entities, so policies that promote safe work environments. And when we think about store level, we think about management, so how management promotes a safe work environment. When we think about workflow issues, we, we kind of ask pharmacists, you know, do you have time to complete tasks? Do you feel like you have time to complete tasks? And do you feel like you have time to accurately verify prescriptions and things of that nature? So that's kind of the questions that we asked regarding those things that we found. But something that really stuck out to me is that a majority of the respondents indicated that they were afraid of being disciplined, both directly or indirectly, for following company policies designed to promote safe work environments. That's interesting. What did they say when they say they were worried about being disciplined? Did they just want to be anonymous? Was it just that they've seen this happen to other people? Did you get any kind of more details on that? So our fear of discipline questions that we asked, so like these were on a seven-point Likert type scale. So we had we had questions like, I am able to follow corporate or company policies that promote a safe work environment without fear of being disciplined directly. And then we had the same question, but we would ask with management without fear of being disciplined directly. So we had questions like that, and we took it that they were indicating displaying fear if they indicated somewhat disagree, disagree, or strongly disagree. So we were hoping, you know, that they would say that they are able to follow company policies that promote a safe work environment without fear of being disciplined. So that was kind of, they indicated that fear if they indicated somewhat disagree, disagree, or strongly disagree. Gotcha. In the, you said in different settings, especially chains, it was kind of like the worst. Can you kind of like rank like best to worst as to what you guys saw for the fields you reached out to? We did not um, ask the specific company that participants worked at. Something we had to think about very carefully was what specific characteristics we wanted to capture about people responding to our survey because we wanted to get enough information about the pharmacists who were you know, providing this data so that we can make sense of the data. But at the same time, we didn't want to get so detailed that it made the respondents feel uncomfortable and feel that they might be able to be identified. So we asked whether they worked at a national chain or a grocery slash big box store or at an independent. Uh, but that's as specific as we got. We didn't get like CVS, Walgreens, Walmart. We didn't get that specific. And so what we found was that pretty consistently, those working at national chains had the most negative perceptions. And then next was grocery slash big box. And then those working at independence, they still, most of them still had a negative perception, but it was the least negative perception of those three groups. Yeah. So it was the best of what you studied, basically. Yes. Okay. So I want to be clear with that because we all know that working working with the public in general can always have a lot of stresses, especially <laughs> especially in the time you did this because it went from no COVID to everywhere COVID, and that's its own like exponential factor for stress in pharmacy. So um, yeah, it'd be very very interesting to redo this study today because we finished data collection 
mid-March. So I remember very clearly that was like right a few days before everything started shutting down um, across the country. Yeah. Uh, And Jenny and I have talked about this a lot, how, how interesting it would be to, to have that data now and look at, you know, some of the same things that we looked at before and see how they've changed. But yeah, you know, and honestly, this should be something that and I'm not going to try and give you guys more work, but this should be something that people are following up on, whether it's <laughs> you, somebody else, or even the state boards, because it's public safety, right? So if all of a sudden you have one area that, like in Ohio, it came out the large chains, like like the uh, large pharmacy chains, not the big box, were just absolutely by far and away, head and shoulders, the worst to work in. And I thought that was pretty telling because, you know, it's like, okay, we have one, like when you look at the graph, it was it agreed with what you guys had, but when you kind of looked at all the results, it was like, okay, expected that and yeah, expected that what the heck is happening over here. And that's kind of what we should really be focusing on is fixing like the worst problems in our profession. Is that kind of what you uh, got from this? Yeah. I mean, there, it was kind of overwhelming because it seemed to be that everything was an issue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was kind of like, which fire do we put out first? And so, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest problems are seen at chains, and you just kind of have to work down from there. And I think there's a lot of different reasons why independents are better off. They're not in a good place, but they're better off than chains. And I think it has to do a lot to do with the, well, it's in the name, the independents that independent (laughs) pharmacies have to make choices that, you know, balance both the business side as well as the healthcare and, you know, patient care delivery side of a pharmacy. You know, yeah. and how Jenny said, it was very interesting to write this paper because we had to be very careful, you know, that, it, that things were perceived less negatively uh, yeah. by certain settings, even though, because overall it was perceived negatively by, by all of them. So it's interesting to even when writing this paper, you know, keeping that in mind. One yeah, thing, the awkward wording is actually intentional in the paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, and one thing about that, too, I find interesting is, and, you know, we'll call out what it is in the room here, but, like, the PBM, some of them are owned by some of the large chains because of the vertical, vertical integration that has happened. And they control, in certain states, a lot of the payments to those independents. So it could almost be, like, a trickle-down effect of you've got one rotten apple that's ruining the whole system because – even what a lot of people look at as the holy land of pharmacy, the independent pharmacy where you can make all the decisions you want, although you do have to put in all the work too, that can be like the rotten fruit because of the other one where it's just spilling into it, right? Because they're like, hey, we're going to cut money here to make to help Wall Street. We're going to cut reimbursement here to also help Wall Street, and it's going to also ruin your settings. So you can't hire as many people. Do you think that maybe that was one of those things that I don't want to say to read between the lines, but you kind of thought of while doing this? Yeah. I mean, we definitely thought about what the potential problems were going in. So there's, you know, there's problems that might be with like individual pharmacists. There's individuals that might happen just regionally or problems that might happen within a specific specific company. But then there's also issues going on at like state or national, you know, policy levels. And so where, what's the true root of all of these issues and because we need to know that in order to figure out what we need to do to fix fix the issue and so we really you know kind of divided up our research questions looking at those different levels and honestly a lot of the initiatives that are out there currently tend to focus on the individual 
there's a lot of talk about, oh, well, our employees are burnt out. So why don't we, you know, give them a seminar on how to like <laughs> meditate and do yoga and that's going to fix everything. Well, you know, those are great things for people to do. I don't think that the problem is really coming from the individuals. And so asking the individuals to do yoga and yoga themselves out of burnout probably <laughs> isn't going to be, you know, the perfect solution. So we wanted to make sure that we, you know, went up the chain. Okay, if it's not just an independent, like an individual problem, then maybe we need to look at company policies and also look at national policies. So like maybe company policies looking at their staffing ratios and things like that, or going all the way up to the more like federal level and saying, you know, are we regulating pharmacy benefit managers at the state level? Do we need to put limits on how many prescriptions a pharmacist can verify per hour? You know, what are the different solutions at all of these different levels that we can do? All right, we're going to move into solutions here. But one thing I, do, I think that kind of proves what you guys found in March of 2020 by the time you ended collecting data till now is around where I work in Northeastern Ohio, we're seeing 10 upwards of 20% of some of these large chains having to just close their, their stores, even though we all know there's a glut of pharmacists right now, right? Like there's more pharmacists coming out than jobs when you do the basic math on it and kind of what we've seen, although that's thrown off a little bit by COVID and testing and things like that and vaccine administration. But you know, many people are just leaving those chains and they're having to like close for whole weekends. I've seen some stores just randomly closed on a Thursday because they had no one to staff it. And when you look at, you know, all of the labor models and things that have come out in the past year or two or five in pharmacy, that doesn't make any sense. But it's because so many people just aren't willing to work in those situations because they either danger to the patients, a danger to themselves, or they just, they're just not going to deal with it. So what solutions or ideas do either of you have to help fix these things? So, yeah, I think what we're seeing right now is very unusual. I think it's accelerated by the pandemic. However, when we did our survey back, you know, just before the pandemic really hit, uh, we found that so approximately 50% of pharmacists said that they had left community pharmacy within the past six months or had plans to leave within the next six months. And then all of a sudden, fast forward to now, September 2021, and we suddenly have this shortage of pharmacists, at least in terms of community pharmacy. And we have uh, Walgreens and CVS offering sign-on bonuses, which we haven't seen in, what, 15 years? <laughs> at least a decade, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, before my time. And so, it, yeah, it's just very strange. You're having all these shortages, and like you said, stores closing. So I think it is the pandemic accelerating and just worsening these concerns that were there pre-pandemic. But also, I think it's just a lot of pharmacists following through on what they said they wanted to do. Um, 50% of our 1,200 participants said that they were planning to leave, and now we have a shortage. So in a way, it's not that surprising to me. So you, yeah. I was gonna say, so you surveyed we'll say half a percent to 1% of the total pharmacist population. And we know that, you know, there was different settings and everything like that. So you probably surveyed, we'll say one and a half to 2% of people who work in community pharmacy based off the rough numbers that, that I know you can correct me if I'm wrong. And of that roughly say 2%, half of them were like, Nope, I'm getting the hell out. 
<laughs> that's and then yeah. they followed through with it a lot of them so i think that's pretty telling and that just kind of proves your theory in real time right now yeah and with that i would note that you know with research especially research on a topic that you know people feel very passionately about you do always run the risk of getting um getting more of the participants who are, are more feel more strongly about it. They're like, ooh, working conditions, that's a really important topic to me, and they're the ones that participate, whereas people are like, yeah, my working conditions are okay. They may not be as likely to participate, but I would say that the demographics of the participants that um, we got, we actually got a pretty good spread. Um, we got respondents from 48 different states, and we had a good mix on, in terms of gender and age and so I feel like what who we got is pretty representative of community pharmacists as a whole. Awesome. And Mercedes, were you going to say something there? Yeah, I was going to say, too, that I don't know that the closing or adjusting staffing, you know, is happening everywhere either. I've seen some posts, this is just anecdotally, from pharmacists that have shared even like Chick-fil-A postings that talk about how they're, you know, closing their indoor eating area because they don't have staff. And I've seen pharmacists say, you know, like, look how positive people are in these adjustments that a fast food restaurant is making because they're short staffed. But, you know, like, if we make those adjustments, we're, you know, met with such, such harsh criticism, even though we're trying to protect our patients because we're such short staffed. And I just think that's kind of funny because, you know, we, we actually saw in our study some of the qualitative responses of, of how, how often pharmacists say that, you know, we're compared to fast food or we're expected to run like a fast food restaurant. And then some pharmacists are even saying now, you know, like, well, they're getting, you know, better treatment for short staffing than we are. So um, I don't know that that's an option for pharmacists everywhere right now either to, you know, close the pharmacy or just hours. So. Yeah. And all right. That, that You're right. I've seen it. And I've had those same thoughts when I worked in community pharmacy. So I think that's a, a good call out because I didn't say it, but it was exactly what I was thinking. You know, we've all seen a, a hashtag go around of, you know, hashtag pizza is not working, which I think kind of hit on a lot of things that, you know, just buying us food isn't and temporarily replacing our serotonin with food is not going to work and get us through this. So what's like the number one thing that you guys saw, maybe one, two, and three that you see as ways that we can help fix this setting of our profession and thus help better take care of people? For solutions, uh, one of the things that we had most support for was addressing PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers. And also the second one was addressing staffing issues. And those two can be seen as kind of related because one of the things that I see many pharmacists say that we need to do to improve working conditions is we just need more pharmacists. But it's not that simple. There's always a trade-off for any solution that you have. So if we're going to put requirements in place mandating staffing minimums so that you know we bump up the number of pharmacists that we have, but that's all we do and we don't address reimbursement, then pharmacist salaries are likely to decrease. And so how do you get better reimbursement? Well, you, you could try restricting pharmacy benefit managers and trying to increase profit in that way. But if you only restrict PBMs and don't do anything else, that doesn't guarantee that companies are going to increase pharmacist staffing hours because, you know, companies right now running at these very low levels of staffing 
are, you know, maintaining this is safe. This is protecting patient safety. What we're doing is fine. So if we suddenly fix reimbursement, whether it's through restricting PBMs or getting reimbursement for other pharmacist-provided services and the company's bringing in more money, they don't necessarily have to turn around and increase staffing because, you know, they're saying what we're doing is safe and they might just want to pocket that extra money that they're bringing in. So that's why it's so dangerous about just focusing on one solution at a time. Some other things that pharmacists proposed were banning performance metrics. You know, Mm -hmm. trying to meet those quotas can be very difficult and stressful, and it can shift the focus from quality over to quantity, which can be dangerous to patients. But if all you do is ban performance metrics, then it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get better staffing or better reimbursement or anything else. So it's just, it's very difficult trying to sift through all of these possible solutions and figure out what the best like constellation of solutions would be and what's the best order um, in which to do them. Okay. So yeah, I think that's a good call out there. The, um, you know, it's pretty interesting, too, because some of the stuff you hit there, we've seen a lot of states recently kind of start to understand the PBM thing, which is probably a lot through the work of groups like, you know, Three Access Advisors and 46 Brooklyn and Antonio Chacha's uh, groups that he's worked with there. And so we've seen them start reeling in PBMs a little bit. So I think we're seeing some progress on that. I think it's still too soon to see how a lot of that has panned out since Rutledge versus PCMA yeah. just kind of, you know, happened last year. Um, but we have also seen... I think it was a California Senator Josh Newman, if I'm saying, if I remember his name correctly, put out a thing to basically, you know, really kind of go after the metrics and the quotas and things like that. So it, it could be interesting to see how this all plays out. And the metrics thing is kind of interesting too, because it's like, how do you ban telling someone a number? I guess, but I do think that a lot of that is what got us to this point because everyone tries to, you know, keep beating that number so they can make a bonus and make someone happy, get a raise, get whatever it is. But mm-hmm. with pharmacy, I think the kind of the, the crux of it is a lot of them haven't gotten raises in five, six years. So why the hell are you even trying to meet the metrics if it's not going to benefit you other than just, you know, keep you barely employed, I guess. So was that kind of something mm-hmm. you had heard too with that feedback? So from the concerns perspective, when we gained insight from the qualitative piece on um, metrics, a lot of the concerns that arose there were from basically the metrics not really reflecting good patient care. So a lot of the pharmacists just didn't have, or a lot of the respondents indicated not having like a desire to really chase these metrics that they didn't feel were really improving patient care. And a lot of them felt that they were just kind of doing it to complete a task rather than, you know, doing it to improve overall care. Okay. I think that's a fair enough reason because we definitely, you know, we are health care workers and without health or care, it kind of defeats the purpose. Otherwise you're just a, a number cruncher, lack of a better term. I kind of want to give you guys some open time to talk about this because this was an awesome, awesome work that you guys put forth. What else do you want to share with people about what you guys did? Maybe Jenny go first and Mercedes follow. So I think that although what we covered in this study is, you know, not exactly surprising, to many pharmacists who have been working in community pharmacy, 
like they probably even wonder why we even bother to study this. <laughs> They're like, are, are these just academics who've never worked in community pharmacy? And first of all, I'd like to say that's not true. We have worked in community pharmacy. <laughs> Good. And that's actually why we studied this, because this is something that I'm very passionate about, something that I really care about and that I'd like to see improve. And so I want this to actually lead to change. I didn't just do this, you know, to publish a paper. I did this because I want to see things improve and I want pharmacists to be able to use this to back themselves up when they are taking their concerns to their employers or to a state board of pharmacy. So I did this because I wanted to, one, get data on what the concerns are that pharmacists can actually use this data to, you know, lead to change. And then two, actually start the discussion of okay, we know there's problems, but what are we going to do now? And so kind of going through all the different possible solutions that there are and figuring out what has the most support, how do we go about achieving this? Like, we need to get together, we need to be unified and figure out what we're doing so that we're more coordinated and more able to actually, you know, see a positive impact and hopefully improve working conditions. And I would absolutely echo that, that I'd say that what's existed so far or much of what has existed about working conditions in the community pharmacy has been very much so anecdotal. And a lot of pharmacists know of the issues that exist, but they don't know where to start. And they don't know, you know, we don't, we didn't have actual data that supports, you know, what everyone is feeling. So I almost hope that this brings a justification too to see like, you know, other pharmacists are feeling this way. So let's make the change. Let's start. Let's start somewhere. Let's let's make these changes. You know, and I think the one good thing about what you guys did is, like I said, we've seen Ohio kind of do theirs. And I, there's other states, too, that started kind of digging into what the pharmacy issues are with whether it be engagement, uh, satisfaction, what have you. Can you ver- safely verify prescriptions? And it's good to see that within a state, but as a corporation, you can just point there and be like, oh, that's a state issue. Oh, that's that state issue. Oh, that's that state issue. And just kind of hope that you don't get 50 of them pop up like whack-a-mole. But what you guys did really kind of combined like a large swath over the whole national uh, pharmacist demographic or populace, if you will, for the setting and said, nope, even nationally, still not good. We need to fix this. So I think that's kind of like a good way of looking at it. And I don't know if some of the states got more or less responses that you got, but 1,200 is one hell of a good sample to start with, and probably more than you get in any one individual state if you just send something out. So if anything, I think it's kind of like you said, that secondary data so that if the states do look into it with their board of pharmacy, they can also say, well, nationwide we got the same issue, or maybe we're a little better, but it's still an issue type of thing. So I think that's huge. Um, I can't let you guys go without asking you the two questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and especially when it comes to this topic because it – is at the heart of pharmacy right now. So whoever wants to go first, go ahead. But if you could change one thing in pharmacy that is not a law, what would it be? I would definitely say patient perceptions of what pharmacists do and what happens in the community pharmacy. There's still so many patients out there that just think that we slap a label on a drug and it shouldn't take that long, you know, and say, we're not doctors and, you know, uh, we shouldn't be making certain decisions and, If I could change anything, I would I would um, educate the patient population on on what it is that we do and all the knowledge that that we have. Yeah. And I think with hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, whatever other crazy concoction came for COVID, it 
<laughs> that kind of came to the forefront, and I think we probably saved a lot of people's lives, or at least a lot of side effects, blurred vision, other problems with that. So I think that's a good call out. Jenny, what would yours be? I would say there needs to be greater pharmacist involvement and unity. And so I say the part about greater uh, pharmacist involvement, not ironically, uh, because <laughs> when I was in pharmacy school, I was not involved. <laughs> um, anyone who knew me in pharmacy school, like I went to class, I went home, I studied, and that was it. And I kind of got this impression when I was in pharmacy school that, okay, great, pharmacists are going to be providing all these new services. That sounds great. Pharmacy is just going to magically evolve, and that's what I'm going to be doing. Great. I graduated and reality hit. And I'm like, nope, this isn't just going to happen on its own. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, over time, I realized that, you know, if I want to see these changes happen, like, I need to get involved. I can't, like, sit here and complain and be like, why isn't this happening faster if I'm not doing anything myself? Yeah. And so that was a big reason why I went back to grad school. And so I just, I'm not, I'm not advocating that all pharmacists go back to grad school. What I'm advocating <laughs> for is that pharmacists get involved. And that can look like a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be a huge time commitment. But I think a first step would be looking at professional associations, probably at the state or national level. Though I would say you might make an even bigger impact at the state level because a lot of state associations are involved with writing policy at the state level, which is where your scope of practice is largely determined. So, you know, it could be very helpful for pharmacists to look at their state association and get involved there. You know, I don't want to speak for every state organization, but, you know, cue the uh, Sarah McLaughlin music. For roughly a dollar a day, you can help save your profession. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, I, I, I'll be honest, I second that one, too, a lot, and I'm not going to add anything else because I 100% agree. <laughs> All right, so we'll ask Jenny to go first on this one, Mercedes, to follow. But if you could change one thing in pharmacy that is a law or law-related, what would it be and why? Reimbursement. Uh, pharmacists need to be reimbursed. I mean, we are providers. Well, I don't even know why this is a question anymore, but we are providers. We need to be recognized for it. And it's not selfish to want to be paid for the value that you provide. Um, You're helping patients. You're improving health outcomes. You're helping the team save money. You should be reimbursed for your services. And with that reimbursement, then guess what? Working conditions could be improved. So that's the one thing that I would change is pharmacists need to be recognized as providers so they can be reimbursed. You mean providing vaccines, tests on top of billing medications, helping determine the right dose of ivermectin and, you know, basically prescribing or giving monoclonal antibodies? It takes that much just to recognize you as a provider these days? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I just want to confirm. Yeah, I think that I've said that numerous times. We've had people on here with it. Yeah, 100% on that one. Mercedes, what's yours? Mine would also be reimbursement, but I think that there should be easier... I guess, resources or guides to help pharmacists um, better understand reimbursement and billing for, especially for certain services Some are, you know, shrouded in so much mystery for, (laughs) for no reason, but, um, and it's difficult to find um, resources for, you know, billing, like, for example, like tobacco cessation services provided by pharmacists. 
um, and things of that nature. And, and it shouldn't be that difficult. You know, if, if we can provide these services, we should have an idea of how to easily bill for them. So, Yeah, Mercedes and I have been on a wild goose chase for another project trying to figure out billing. And I'd like to think that neither one of us is dumb, but we've had <laughs> very, very little success so far in navigating how you even bill for these services or even if you can bill for these services. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, that's one thing that I've been building out in my current practice is how do we get the pharmacists more involved? I'm in the FQHC world now, so it's a little different than, you know, your retail community pharmacy setting. Some of the same rules apply, some don't, you know, with pharmacy, whatever your institution is determines a lot of your reimbursement, which is even crazier to your point about, about that. So, uh, that just complicates the picture even more, but Hey, I just want to say thank you guys for coming on. Where can people find you if they want to reach out or, find this article, which I will put in the show notes for listeners too. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. It's at Jen PharmD PhD. And then also email J Newlin, N-E-W-L-O-N at Purdue.edu. And Mercedes? I don't remember my Twitter handle. I was going to look it up. <laughs> That's fine. Um, <laughs> you can reach me at my email. Um, it's changed. Chambi, so it's C-H-A-M as in Mary, B as in boy, E as in egg, 22 at purdue.edu. Gotcha. I will put all that in the show notes for listeners because I think that, you know, if you guys are looking for more projects, there's plenty of people in pharmacy who can come up with smart things to send you and, you know, hopefully that'll spark something for you. So everything will be in the show notes listeners. I want to be very clear with that. This is going to be a long show notes episode because there's a lot to really put in here. So I think it's awesome, but Hey, thank you guys both Dr. Beal, Dr. Klabaugh for coming on the, the podcast day, sharing it. And I'll make sure that we, uh, we do what we can to provide you with some ideas, hopefully. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you. And, and as always, listeners, if you can share this, give it five-star review, something like that. I don't often ask for that, but this one particularly episode I think is really good. And it's a good one that you could probably share with your legislators to allude to what was said earlier. And I will try and put that in the show notes as well of how you can reach out to your state legislatures because I think this is a huge one that we can present to them since it does explain the complexities of the issues going on in pharmacy and taking care of patients these days. But as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. 